Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. This episode is super exciting for many reasons. First and foremost, it is because we will be covering the Great Lakes. Both my guest and myself have a lot of history with the Great Lakes within our short lifespans. Additionally, my guest is one of my favorite science communicators. And throughout this episode, we'll be focusing on her bread and butter, which is the Great Lakes, art, science communication, and her fantastic annual series called Spooky Lake Month. Speaking of my guest, let me introduce Geo Rutherford. Gio is an artist, educator, and content creator. She received a BFA from Eastern Michigan University and an MFA from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Gio is an adjunct professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee teaching two-dimensional concepts. In the summers, she is the art director at Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp, and in her spare time, she co-chairs the hashtag WhyYouMatter nonprofit. Currently, she lives in Sauk City, Wisconsin with her dog, Padfoot. As I alluded to previously, Gio is one of my favorite content creators and an extremely well-known science communicator. She shares videos regarding her art, limnology, hydrology, and much more. Currently on TikTok, she has over 1.5 million followers, including myself. So. Now that you've been introduced to my guest star and the topic of this podcast, we're going to head into our first segment where we will dive into Geo's work and information about the Great Lakes. Cheers. Geo, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I went to yoga this morning, so I feel great. That's impressive. I haven't done yoga in so long. I, I don't even want to know what that would look like. Anyways, Happy to have you on the podcast. I'm just really excited to do this. We have a lot of interesting things to talk about, and especially for this first segment, talking about your art. So I might as well just start off with this first question rather than trying to spoil anything. What is your work about? I make work about the Great Lakes, and all of my work is kind of centered around what's going on with the Great Lakes ecologically, what is happening with invasive species, what's happening with pollution. I'm just kind of interested in the Great Lakes as a whole, and I spend a lot of time visiting the Great Lakes beaches, and then I also share about lake-related content on my TikTok, and that's all kind of tied together. Like I always say that I'm a content creator and educator and then artist, so I kind of fit under a lot of umbrellas, I guess. I love your content, and I got to watch one of your shorter documentaries on YouTube, which was really cool. And it did talk about like your art studio and what you do and, and the beaches that you've been to and collected some, like had some of the collections that went into, uh, you know, your physical art studio. So it's, it's quite fascinating. So what kind of mediums do you use whenever you create your work? So medium and art can apply to a lot of different stuff, but for me, it's specifically interested in printmaking and book arts. Um, I actually went to undergrad for printmaking and fiber artists art, which for me was screen printing on fabric and dyeing fabric and stitching on fabric. Not so much the irony is that I have a fibers undergrad concentration, but I don't even know how to use a sewing machine. So I think fibers can be kind of a confusing outside of the craft world. And then I recently discovered book arts in grad school. So now I also do book arts. Do you have any book 
arts out right now? Sorry, that might be a really dumb question. <laughs> so book arts is, I think that if no one's ever heard of book, if you've never heard of book arts, then it is not what you think it is. Okay. Right? Yeah. To explain. So an artist book is where an artist has final control over a work of art that may or may not appear as a book. It can be a little bit manipulating because sometimes the artist book doesn't have any appearance of being a book. There's a famous book by Jessica Poor, which is a pill bottle. It's a prescription pill bottle. And on the outside of the pill bottle, it says, a pharmacy of crippling hope. Take as many pills by mouth. It doesn't matter. You're still going to die. And you open up the book and on the inside are pills, little actual pill capsules. And on the inside are little slips of paper. And on those slips of paper, it gives you bad advice. Eat sugar. Like it's like all the things that kind of could kill you. And so that's a book. But if you were to come across it in the wild, you probably wouldn't think, oh, this is a book. So book arts is kind of an interesting field of art where artists are asking themselves, what is a book? Like what defines a book? And you kind of list those, like, is it a book if it has no words? Is it a book if it has no covers? It doesn't have any paper. Is it still a book? If I can't read the book, is it a book? What if I can't open it? Is it still a book? It's along the same lines of Joseph Kasuth, who is an artist who did a famous piece called One in Three Chairs, where he put a physical chair in the studio. He put a photograph of a a chair next to it. And then he put the definition of a chair next to that. Which one is a chair? What is a chair? And that's kind of along the same lines as what people are trying to do with book. So when I make a book, it's not necessarily going to fit in your definition of book. It's not, it's not going to look like Harry Potter. It's not going to look like the Hungry Caterpillar. It's not necessarily going to fit into any of those standards. And it can be easily mixed up with art book, which is where artists put their work in photographs inside of a traditional book. And it's essentially just like, you know, for a coffee table. That's not really what I'm doing. What I'm doing is way outside of that. Okay, see, me being the layman here, I literally went book, art, art book. And I was like, (laughs) okay, so you have books out. That's cool. I I didn't know that. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. See, I'm being schooled. I'm I'm learning things every day. I love it. (laughs) My first ever viral video on TikTok, the video, the first video I ever posted, and what actually got me my initial traction on the app was me sharing my book. And it was such a weird book and nobody thought it was a book that of course it went viral because 95% of the comments were, that's That's not a book. book. Yeah. Yep. That was Um, good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so my foray into the TikTok world was explaining artist books and talking about artist books. And I had access to the special collections at the library, despite the fact that it was a pandemic, I still got to go in and take video of books. And I, so I have videos that are hilarious. They don't look like my videos at all. Nobody today who watches my TikTok would be like, oh yeah, this is Gio's video. Like they're just random videos of weird books, like a book that's completely made of glass. You know, is it a book? It has no writing in it. It's just, it has a single photograph and sharing books like a children's board book that was like a religious board book. And then it kind of gets manipulated into an artist book where the artist like changes words in it so that it has a different meaning. That's still an artist book. So my book was a box of test tubes. 
which I think the science in you would appreciate. It's a box of glass test tubes. So first thing you do is you come across this box. It's blue. There's a lithograph on the top and it says beach finds. So you open it and you're encountering a rack of rubber capped vintage test tubes. So they're kind of like this burnt umber test tubes that are glass. So you pull one out at a time. And as you start pulling these out, you start to realize that there's a story that's kind of being revealed through this random access narration. Each tube is filled with beach material from the natural to the unnatural, from Mother Nature's pocket change to the Anthropocene. By the time you get to the last tube, you kind of have this full picture of what is on a Great Lakes beach. That's an example of one of my artist books. That's wonderful. It's any way, I guess, to capture the imagination if you want to say it, like if you want to talk about a book art rather than an art book. It's just whatever, quote unquote, paints a picture, what you're trying to deliver, what's what's your message with the art. And I guess there's your message, but then what the interpreter then gets out of that, I guess, doesn't have to be that same message, but maybe something quite similar. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's why it's kind of a fun thing to share on TikTok because people always get (laughs) fairly confused. So it it does well. I always say that things that make people angry, things that make people sad, things that make people super happy and things that confuse the crap out of people are the things that go viral on TikTok. Those are some secrets on the TikTok world. So I can't let them all know the secrets. (laughs) (laughs) So Definitely. I'm curious, why why do you embody the Great Lakes in your work, uh, since we've kind of hinted at it here? I was never really a Great Lakes fanatic. I didn't grow up in the Midwest. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, where mm-hmm. the only water is like a reservoir. It's kind of this gnarly body of water. My parents used to row in Boulder, and I remember going to the boathouse and going to their regattas, and it was like, gross. Like I was always grossed out by pile puddles of water. It was something that I was just not that interested in. And then in the summers, we go to Ocean City, New Jersey and see the ocean and go to the ocean. We, and my parents were both teachers. So we'd go for like a month, something that most people wouldn't do. And we would just live at the beach for a month. So when we moved to Ann Arbor, I started spending the summers closer to Lake Michigan and I, I started to get it. I, I didn't, I never got it before that. I, I don't think I ever had any education on the Great Lakes. I had a weird education though. Like I lived in Australia for a year and like it kind of screwed up my access to earth science. Like I never had a normal earth science class, despite the fact that my mom is an earth science professor. So like I had earth science in my life, but I never had an earth science class. So it was kind of a weird education. I feel like I just didn't even think of the Great Lakes until I ended up right next to them. And I remember the first time I, I was a teenager when I stood next to them and thought, what the, what is happening? It's like the, like enormous, right? Yeah. It's just inconceivable and it takes you hours. I remember driving from Chicago to Ann Arbor and it's hours and hours and hours to make that drive. So, um, so that's kind of why I ended up taking the Great Lakes uh, and going with that topic because I just felt like it deserved an advocate. The lakes deserve someone to be bringing attention to them. They deserve someone to be making art about them. It's such an interesting topic. So when I was in grad school, I kind of just like, sorry, I skipped around here a little bit, but I moved to Milwaukee and, um, and it was the first time I ever lived on a great lake and Milwaukee is kind of gnarly. Like Milwaukee is like, I had never (laughs) thought yet again, I had never thought about Milwaukee until I lived there suddenly 
and it's right on Lake Michigan and the entire coastline is so rocky that the only beaches, a lot of the beaches are artificial. Mm. And so it was kind of interesting to spend time on that shoreline, which was like kind of this totally fake shoreline. And I was living five minutes from the water and just decided that it was worth the time and the effort and the dedication. So my appreciation for the Great Lakes started a lot earlier than you. My family has a permanent footing in Lake Erie in Pennsylvania for, geez, I would say at least two generations. I've went to Lake Erie my entire life during the summer months, I guess spring, summer, fall. So I have a pretty, you know, interwoven tie, I guess, to, to Lake Erie itself. Not really any of the other lakes. I mean, I've been to Ontario maybe like four or five times. I fished up there. I've fished in Erie, Lake Michigan, not so much, uh, just a little bit. But I love the Great Lakes. And I honestly think the history of them is, is extremely fascinating. Just that much body of water, fresh water, representing 20% of all the fresh water on Earth is, is just insane. And it's all geographically in like one area. It's, mm-hmm. it's amazing. I find the formation story extremely fascinating. I, I love geologic history. It's really cool. I took a decent amount of time before this recording just to like brief myself on it, just so I could kind of talk about it because I love it. I'm sure a lot of people know that like it happened based on the last glacial period, the Laurentide Ice Sheet. But like, it's more interesting than just that, like the formation and the recession of it. Yeah, actually, my first science video, my first viral science video on the Great Lakes was uh, 4.5 million views telling people that the glacier would come and go and come and go. And (laughs) Uh, so and that shocked me, too. Like, yet again, I kind of had a funny like I felt like there was pockets of things I was missing in my education. So part of the reason I feel like my TikTok is so fun for me is because I get shocked about stuff all the time. So I feel like I didn't fully understand the glacial period very well. Like, when do we really talk about that in school? Earth science is such a huge topic and it ends up that you're not talking about like the history of the earth in any of these classes in particular, at least for me, like my (laughs) Midwest, you know, Ann Arbor education did not get dig into the, to the glacial period. So there's kind of like, yeah, the mammoths. And like, I feel like some of my education just came from ice age the movie. Uh, and, and so when I kind of fully started to dig into the Great Lakes, I was like, oh my God, an ice sheet that was miles thick, like two, three miles thick at the thickest point was moving across the land and then pulling back every season, it would come forward and move back and come. For- I just, that is mind blowing. It essentially dug the Great Lakes into the ground, which is really hard to conceive. And so that like you were saying, the formation is just such a fascinating aspect of history. And and there's other places on the planet where the glaciers did the same thing, like over Finland and Norway and all these other places. But North America is kind of special. Like that humongous continental ice sheet was really the biggest in the world at the time. So it's kind of a fun piece of history. Well, except for, okay, Antarctica, but we'll yeah. leave that <laughs> on the northern half. <laughs> Very true. I think one of my favorite fun facts in like that whole story is that out of like the five, there's two of them that form differently 
the Ontario and Superior, at the bottom of those two lakes are basalts, which are just geologically formed volcanic rock. And it was a big head scratcher because they found first that Huron, Michigan, and Erie were formed and they, at the bottom they have, you know, limestone or mostly uh, dolostone or, or dolomite. And it was such a huge head scratcher, but they finally figured out that Superior and Ontario were made from rift valleys. So from a long, long time ago, they had, you know, a magma cooling and that's where you get your basalts. Over time, they filled in with sedimentary rock and sediment, and the, the ice sheet was literally just pulverizing that back to where you expose that rift valley. The cool thing about the other three, though, is that about 350, 380 million years ago was the Devonian period, and Laurentia, which was you know, Canada and the United States at the time, was lowland seas. So that's where a lot of the limestone became dolostone or dolomite, which is just like the transformation of limestone into like it, what, what happens is like a substitution where magnesium takes the place of calcium. It makes it harder, um, more resistant to acid, et cetera. So it's a tougher rock, right? And uh, over time that filled in, of course, with, with sediment, more sedimentary rock that was also gouged out. So there's two different base layers in the five different lakes, which is really, really fascinating to me. So it has like two different origin stories, but has the same different how-to in terms of how they, they, they came about. Really, really cool. I know about Lake Superior because I always say that Lake Superior had an ancient volcano, yeah. uh, which is why Lake Superior agates exist. Like a lot of the rocks that are famous on Lake Superior are because of that ancient volcanic history. I don't think I knew as much about Lake Ontario. I need to, I should probably look into that because that's really interesting. I've done videos about that period of time during the Laurentia, but I haven't covered that. So that's fascinating. Thanks, Sam. I didn't know yeah. about that one. Now it's, I have to go do, do a dig deep dive. <laughs> yeah, it's actually Ontario and the entire St. Lawrence Seaway. That's that Rift Valley, which is quite fascinating. And um, one other thing, one last thing before I guess we move on, because I'm just kind of, I want to throw it out there because they're really cool fun facts for people is that Niagara Falls is also based out of that, that dolostone or dolomite. And the cool thing about it is, is they, they figured out like a rate of erosion for Niagara Falls and they estimate it to be about three feet per year. So they 50,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. Where <laughs> it, it could totally disappear. And then like all of Lake Erie would just drain back out. But by that time, we could be in another glacial period, which at that point wouldn't mean anything anyways, because it would just dig the lakes deeper. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Fun fact, piggybacking off of that fun fact is the Niagara Escarpment. The Niagara Falls is kind of the most well-known aspect of the Niagara Escarpment, but it goes up through Lake uh, Huron. That's where Manitoulin Island and all the giant islands through Lake Huron, all the way down to Wisconsin and Door County. I don't know if you know those areas, but that whole area, there's this giant archway all the way through the Great Lakes, which is harder rock than the rest, which is how you get this huge escarpment. And that's why Lake Michigan on Door County, which is near Green Bay, just for context for you, it's like, a, it's like the Wisconsin finger. It's like this little finger that sticks out. And um, half of it is like submerged into Lake Michigan. And the other half is this giant cliff face, which is part of the same Niagara escarpment that creates the Niagara Falls. 
And there's an ancient, gigantic, enormous waterfall in Lake Huron where that huge cliff led to this huge waterfall down between the two parts of Lake Huron of the Georgian Bay. I always get yelled at about that. Georgia Bay? Georgian Bay? People always yell at me about that. So I screw it up because I get yelled at and then I get like confused. Uh, but that area is kind of fun. So there's like actually a waterfall between those two. So okay. also Lake Michigan and Lake Huron are technically one lake. That's like another fun fact. That's true. Do you what know that the, one, Sam? What is the famous bridge? That, Mackinac uh, Strait. The Mackinac Strait. Yeah, the Mackinac Straits is five miles across, which means that technically it's connected. But That's it's true. just easier. And even Native American names for the lakes were different so they acknowledge these like different separate bodies of water and so we've like always considered these as two different bodies of water despite that strait that's interesting even at being about twenty six thousand feet of the strait (laughs) that they're like oh yeah it's two different bodies because the bodies are so massive and that leads me to i guess this question these lakes as we've established are huge but why are we not calling them seas you know we call other bodies that are inland seas, but not lakes. So do you want to like give that differentiation? All of the examples of seas, a lot of these bodies of water that were historically called seas were at a time when people didn't have a universal definition of sea. Caspian Sea, the Dead Sea, these these bodies of water were named a long, long time ago, <laughs> potentially <laughs> thousands of years ago. And so the name kind of just stuck, despite the fact that now we kind of universally agree that lakes are bodies of water that are fully surrounded by land. Okay. And that's kind of the definition of a modern day lake. But there's tons and tons of examples where this is, <laughs> uh, a lake might actually be, like, for example, the largest lake in the world and the deepest lake in the world is the Caspian Sea, right? Um, or the, has more vo- volume of water. It's, I don't think, I actually think that the Caspian Sea isn't as deep as Lake Baikal. Um, but then, like, the Dead Sea, which is extremely salty. And so you would think, you know, oh, that's, is it a sea just because it's salty? Well, no, it's still a lake. It's surrounded by land. And an example here in our backyard is the Sultan Sea, which is a lake out in California that used to be a flood valley for the Colorado River. Like the Colorado River would flood, doesn't happen as much anymore, and this whole valley would fill and sometimes even fill enough to connect it to the ocean right there. And then that ended up being this like salty kind of spit of land. So the Great Lakes, sometimes people call them sweetwater seas. That's kind of a more colloquial term to refer to them as, just to try to acknowledge that sheer size. But they are our Great Lakes. I also thought it had something to do with elevation, but maybe it's just based on being surrounded by land. Okay. Yeah. Well, because, and there's examples too. I actually did, because I obviously, I think we've confessed this already. Maybe you haven't that I don't have a degree in science. And so when I first started this TikTok, people are like, well, what is a sea versus a lake versus a pond? Like what makes something a pond? And so I would go on these insane deep dives to try to figure out what's going on with the terminology. Like, and there's all these lakes that are actually um, lagoons or lakes that are really probably even a bay or it's like an estuary and it's not even a lake. Or, uh, and so there's all these great examples like Lake Pontchartrain in Louisiana is technically a estuary or maybe even a lagoon 
because it's connected to the ocean. So the ocean actually flows in through the Gulf of Mexico into Lake Pontchartrain. So it's not a lake because it's open to the ocean, but it's not large enough to be ever considered a sea. But then you have something like the Sargasso Sea, which is out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It doesn't even, like if you wanted to give the definition of a sea being that it needs to be bordered by land next, like in the ocean, but bordered by land, doesn't even qualify because then you end up with the (laughs) the Sargasso Sea, which is just smack dab in the middle. So all of these definitions are kind of a little tricky because you're constantly like getting challenged by, you know, uh, in the United States, like something that's probably a fjord um, and fjords are created by the glaciers as well. And so it's Mm -hmm. kind of versus a sound, right? So there's a sound, there's a fjord, there's a bite, there's a bay, there's a sea, there's an estuary, there's a lagoon. And it's like, what are these things and what are their definitions? And then you have a million examples of those definitions being thrown to the wayside, right? Yep. You know, so like a bay versus a gulf, like a gulf is supposed to have a narrow outlet where like it, like, it's just a small little area. So the Gulf of Mexico is a perfect example because it kind of gets like, there's all these mm. things in the way. And so the exit into the ocean is fairly limited. The Hudson Bay is probably also a gulf by modern definition, right? Because it has like a small exit. I'm obviously like throwing stuff out there. Like, I don't know for sure. I would be curious to hear somebody who like has professionally taken on all of the world's geographical features and <laughs> re- given them a new definition or a new term. Uh, Cause I find that stuff fascinating. We need like a set of cartographers to just go out there and make this a little more clear. Honestly, for the layperson, they would probably want to know whether it's salt or fresh water. <laughs> that would probably be <laughs> their first like, okay, I really don't care whether this is a fjord, a bay, a gulf, a strait, et cetera. I just want to know if I have to worry about drinking salt water for the next hour. That's <laughs> Yeah, which is a fair concern because then there's there's lakes that are in the middle of the land, completely separated from the ocean, and people don't realize that they could be extremely salty. The Great Salt Lake, Mono Lake or Mono Lake, depending on how you say it, Don Juan Pond in Antarctica, which is essentially just a body of water that's like the consistency of syrup because it's so mm. salty that it's syrupy. Isn't that mm. gross? I yeah. don't know what the specific gravity is of that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That'd be horrible. Um, so just to get back on track about the Great Lakes really quick, um, because I don't think we, we touched on this, is obviously we know that it's important, but we want to maybe explain like how important it is, both um, anthropologically and uh, ecologically. Do you want to dive into that? Maybe talk about the anthro first? I feel like what's interesting about the Great Lakes is the fact that they're just this enormous freshwater resource. That's kind of what I think ends up being historically important with the lakes. And in a modern sense, it's also super important for the way that we move forward with our access to freshwater and the way that we use that freshwater, the way that we keep that freshwater in the Great Lakes and we don't let it just all end up in the ocean. Like those are kind of all things that I think are kind of fascinating, but anthropologically is kind of an interesting way. I don't know if I've ever said, let me just talk about the historical anthropology of the Great Lakes. (laughs) You could dive in also to like, you know, the significance to indigenous people and how the Great Lakes were like this centerpiece of indigenous culture for a long time. And like 
all of the lakes have such important roots to the first people of North America. The way that we use the lakes for moving material around the United States has an interesting history as well. It, like yeah. getting stuff from the St. Lawrence Seaway all the way over to Duluth is kind of this fascinating um, aspect of Great Lakes history, which, you know, also ties into the ecological history because the ecological history is almost 100% tied up with colonization and the way that we opened up the Great Lakes to all of the uh, ships of the world has, has, is what actually destroyed the Great Lakes ecology as well. So all these things are kind of interestingly braided together and I find it kind of fascinating. So, yeah. And that's one thing I didn't even think about maybe just to like shed some light on the indigenous peoples that inhabited around the Great Lakes were there for, I'm just going to lowball this and say at least 11,000 years. We've only been yeah. here for a couple hundred. That's fascinating. <laughs> there's interesting archaeological evidence at the bottom of the Great Lakes as well. Like there's archaeological evidence all around the Great Lakes for these people that lived here 11,000 yeah. years ago. But there's some interesting ones. There's the, uh, they call it the Stonehenge beneath Lake Michigan. Have you ever heard of this? It's a row of rocks that have been placed down in a very specific way. It's interesting because it's a caribou line Caribou like won't cross a rock line. Did you know that? No. If you put down rocks in a row, caribou will not, they will, they're freaked out by it. They're just like, no, I can't cross that. That's a wall. They're just rocks on the ground, but the, the caribou are like, mm, I think that's a wall. <laughs> huh. and, so, <laughs> and so there's like a beautiful, underneath Lake Michigan, there's this beautiful evidence of the first people living here placing down these runways to try to track down caribou, it kind of ends up being traced beneath the waters of Lake Michigan. So it's kind of some interesting archaeological evidence. And then, you know, I've actually been meaning to do a video on the indigenous history of the Great Lakes. The problem is it's such a big topic. I think that's why yeah. I've kind of shied away from it. It's a big topic. And I'm always a little bit nervous about pronunciation of things. So I haven't done a video on that, even though I I know that, you know, it'd be fun to talk about, like, where did the Great Lakes get their original names from? What do those names mean? How does that tie into the modern way that we perceive or think about these bodies of water? How much access still exists for those reservations and the Native Americans that are still here today and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of off topic, but I think it's interesting. No, it would be interesting even just to take a set amount of time and do some said videos of it, just like how you do a Spooky Lake Month. I know I didn't mean to to jump ahead like two segments, but I just <laughs> wanted to say like, I think that'd be a really No, it's cool true. Lake. I actually need to redo my Great Lake series because I did it originally in 2020. That was my very first ever series on the app for science. I did deep dives into all sorts of weird Great Lake stuff. Like the giant, the biggest salt mine in the world is under Lake Huron. Oh yeah. I made a video on it. And, uh, you know, the history of the, the, uh, the St. Lawrence River and the history of the Le Griffin, which was the first ship built in Lake Erie that then it was built in Lake Erie. It's this giant wooden, like, it looks like a pirate ship, right? And it was built in Lake Erie and then it set off to go in and it never was seen again. So it was built and then just immediately disappeared. <laughs> and it's like one of the greatest Great Lakes mysteries is like where this ship oh. went you know, making videos just about all sorts of random things that I find interesting about the Great Lakes. I need to redo some of them because now they're getting really old, but I think one of them definitely needs to be about the indigenous history. 
somewhat recently about the Great Lakes invasive species history, because I find that really fascinating, which kind of gets back to that ecology and like what the, you know, ecology of the Great Lakes are and why that's important. But the Great Lakes were kind of, I always say that they're babies. The Great Lakes were like a baby ecological system. Yeah. They were only, like you were pointing out with the history, like 15, 11,000 years old at the very most, you know, and a lot of the animals and wildlife that live in the Great Lakes today are remnants of just like the waterways and the, it's Mm -hmm. it's very like, versus, for example, I always want to talk about Lake Baikal as my audience knows. I joke, actually, I think I actually changed my bio recently and it says Lake Baikal Stan account. (laughs) because <laughs> it's true i am a lake baikal stan um and uh but lake baikal is 28 million years old and it has its own unique ecosystem that doesn't exist anywhere else on earth like there's animals living in lake baikal that can't be found anywhere else and that's that's not, that's not what's going on with the great lakes well and it's incredible too because lake baikal and i've like kind of talked about it people call it the galapagos of siberia the populations are so unique there's this crazy sponge creature that lives in Lake Baikal. It's like this green spongy creature um, that like cleans the water and like Baikal has giant hydrothermal vents connected to the earth's crust. Like there's all these fascinating things. Great Lakes are just not, that's just not the case. And so when we opened up the Great Lakes, when they connected Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, we were talking earlier about the Niagara Falls Mm-hmm. The Niagara Falls was protecting the Great Lakes. Like nothing yeah. could come up through the St. Lawrence River, Lake Ontario. is like the catch-all for all that stuff, right? Like all that True. stuff ends up there first. Lake Ontario has the most shipwrecks. You have to think that like the ships were able to come across through the St. Lawrence River and then they got stuck in Lake Ontario. Right. And then they could never get any further than that. They could never get to Lake Erie, Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, and, and Lake, Lake Superior. And so they had to build something and they ended up building the Welland Canal, which connects Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. And it's kind of this, it actually has like some fascinating history because they really truly thought this was going to like change the world. They were like, and, and even at the beginning, there was like some idea that they would be able to find a pass, a passageway through Lake Superior, like out onto the other side of the United States. So there's like truly some crazy ideas out there of like how how much this would be able to like open up the world and just kidding it opens up to Duluth, Minnesota. Um or I guess I guess I think Thunder Bay might be the furthest or like I don't know where the furthest area is. So they they built the Welland Canal which then essentially like created a way for ships to come through to the Great Lakes and then ships mm-hmm. to be able to offset their weight. So if a ship is empty it like scoops up all the water into the belly of the ship mm-hmm. and that's called ballast water. And if you pick up ballast water from the over in the black sea or like that Mediterranean, if you pick up ballast water from China or, or India or something like that, you're picking up all of the organisms that live in that area. You make your way across the world and you go down the St. Lawrence seaway and through the Welland canal And then when you get to your destination, Lake Erie, Lake Huron, Lake Superior, you dump out all of that ballast water to take on the weight of the cargo that you're going to be moving. So what was happening was they were just like bringing all of these creatures into the Great Lakes that had never been, uh, had never existed on the Great Lakes. They were like this total shock to the Great Lakes system. Like if this is a story of the Great Lakes and there's three main characters, right? That 
that get the top billing of like most interesting invasive species. The sea lamprey, which is like the mm-hmm. most disgusting animal on the planet. It's so <laughs> gnarly looking. Then the alewives, which is a type of prey fish. Okay. didn't have any natural predators in the Great Lakes, so it, it exploded in population. And mm-hmm. then finally the mussels. When they start to realize that this is a major problem, they start to like figure out things that they can do to fight back on these invasive species. One way is that now ballast water has to be dumped out in the middle of the ocean and kind of flushed out of the boat system. So when a boat leaves the Mediterranean or the Black Sea, they make their way to the middle of the ocean, they dump their water and then like scoops up, scoop up salt water. The mm. salt water is going to be less likely to house like creatures that could easily survive in freshwater environments. Uh, we, we created something super fancy called lampricide. Sounds good, doesn't it? And mm. we dumped it in all of the waterways around the Great Lakes to kill off the lampreys young. So we killed all the lampreys, but then we were like, yeah, we're, so, we're doing great. Like we're defeated all of the Great Lakes invasive species. And then the, the alewives come and alewives, like I said, don't have a natural predator. And so they're just like piling up. They, they overpopulate and they end up just piling up on Great Lakes beaches. It's so hard to believe too, because now Great Lakes beaches are like a tourist destination. Like everybody loves the Lake Michigan coast and Lake Superior and all this stuff. Well, Lake Superior wasn't as negatively impacted as Lake, Lake Michigan. Um, but imagine going to those beaches today and having them just be piled with billions of dead alewives, dead fish. They were being bulldozed off of the beaches. That's how many there were. And so what's our solution for this? We're so smart. We always come up with a solution. Do you, oh, Sam, you go ahead and guess. What do you think we did? What did we do to defeat this prey fish that was taking over the Great Lakes? Are we going back to the sides again where we're trying to attack their reproductive organs or no? No, don't worry. That does come back into the picture. Instead, we, oh. we decided to bring in their natural predator. So who did, we, oh. who did we introduce into the Great Lakes? This is something that a lot of people don't realize. But all of the salmon in the Great Lakes, the we actually oh. introduced salmon to the Great Lakes as the natural predators to the alewives. So it's just like really interesting piece of history because what happened was they um, were able to do this because they convinced whoever the powers of be uh, that this would be good for Great Lakes tourism. The Great Lakes at this point were not where you go and like lounge on the beach. So everybody's like sport fishing. You know what yeah. we need? We need salmon. Salmon aren't going to naturally reproduce themselves because salmon have like this really deep deep uh instinct to go back up to the waterways up into the rivers that they came from yeah so when they when they planted salmon into the great lakes they actually believed that they weren't going to naturally reproduce themselves so the idea was that they were just going to continually dump fry which are the little like the little baby salmon into the great lakes every year hundreds of thousands of fry dumped into the great lakes salmon fry you know what's going to happen here. So of course the alewife population plummets because the salmon are eating them. Good. Great. Perfect. Salmon population is is hot stuff doing good. Then of course the salmon reproduce in nature because nature always finds a way. And then of course the salmon population booms and then crashes. So you have this interesting, like the alewife boom, then the salmon boom, and then the crash and then the crash. And like, and it's kind of this funny like soap opera of like what's happening with the invasive species. And um, this kind of left room for the mussels that we know today 
to mm. take over the Great Lakes. The mussels were much more insidious, way less fun than the <laughs> the alewives uh, and the lamprey. The mussels are just are really awful. It started with the zebra mussel and then led to the quagga mussel. Quagga mussels are special because they can attach to sand. They like, oh. don't even need anything really to attach to. And so what's the, the bottom of Lake Michigan, Lake Erie, Lake Huron? They're all sand. And so, of yep. course, you have this boom of quagga mussels. So quagga mussels are like our current battle. And they're coming up with a muscle side, just like what they came up with with the lamper side, to try to fight the mussels. So wow. these mussels are like the worst thing for all lakes, not just the Great Lakes. Yeah, that's interesting. And these these uh, asides, anything I hear that I just cringe because I'm just thinking of like, okay, we might think that it's only going to affect these, these muscles. What if it's also affecting like long-term affecting like other reproductive organs of other organisms that we just don't know about quite yet. So it's, it's kind of it's a touchy subject, but I mean, it's something that has to be addressed or there's some adverse effects coming down the pipe. I didn't even know about alewives. That's really cool. I didn't know about that. And I didn't know that salmon wasn't indigenous to the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. That's freaking cool. That story is fascinating because it's like one man that thought of it. I forget what his name was, but he's like this famous guy who kind of came up with the, the plan to plant salmon in the Great Lakes. And now we still have salmon today. And they're still planted in the Great Lakes to this day. Because we were, we're constantly trying to feed this sport fish tourist industry, which is being kind of decimated by the fact that the food chain's all screwed up now because the mussels like clean the water so thoroughly that there's no nutrients like left for mm. all of the little guys that provide the bottom of this pyramid. One other crazy thing that I, this sure. is one of my favorite facts about Great Lakes, like ecology and invasive species so we got all these mussels right the, it's mm -hmm. bad news you've got all this so there's one uh, native fish called the white fish and the white fish is struggling like it can't get its normal food source because the mussels are completely wiping it out so the white fish decides you know what i'm just gonna start eating these mussels they look pretty good they look pretty good i'm gonna start eating them these white fish start chomping down on mussels and this is such an interesting story of genetic mutation Mm -hmm. because what happens when they start to eat, digest, and then poop out the muscles, the muscles are sharp and they're really like pointy and they start oh. to rip up the mm. whitefish butthole. So the whitefish butthole <laughs> is like destroyed by these muscles. But it's like, it's like, I'm just, I'm going to overcome this. So the whitefish keep eating the muscles and they keep getting their butthole destroyed every single time that they try to poop. And so over the course of a very short amount of time, just a few generations of whitefish, suddenly you have an evolved whitefish butthole, which is like prepared to deal with the stress of eating the mussels that are taking over the Great Lakes. So that's like a story of like, of how nature overcomes these types of ecological speed bumps along the way. I love the, the environmental <laughs> pressures pushing genetic mutation. That's so fantastic. <laughs> Honestly, somebody needs yeah. to be studying this for human sphincters whenever we have trouble. Somebody yeah. get on we that. Gotta start, <laughs> <laughs> we got to start being able to eat those muscles too. That'd be a good way to fight the population problem. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would do it. 
uh, you know, I like eating muscles. I mean, you know, that are usually about this big. I don't know <laughs> if I'd want to eat the little ones all whole. Yeah, it would be a very crunchy experience. It's like what they're doing for the Asian carp. I think Asian carp yeah. are trying to figure out a way for us to eat them to try to fight that population. So, yeah. Anyway. So true. So the last fun. thing uh, I, I think we should cover, and then we can go into a commercial break is we, we talked about the invasive species, but there's also a lot of history just within the last couple hundred years in terms of pollution, maybe more recently than maybe in the past. And maybe we're seeing more repercussions now based on the timeline of what we've done as humans. I know two things that come to my mind, and I'm sure there's a lot more that you know about, obviously one being plastic pollution, the other one being actual algae blooms, like cyanobacteria, stuff like that. What would you like to tackle first? I think algae blooms are so interesting. Like dead Mm -hmm. zones are really interesting. They're really awful, but they're also fascinating. I did a great video recently on the Great Black Swamp. Do you know about the Great Black Swamp, Sam? Mm -mm. So the Great Black Swamp is actually on your home turf near Toledo. Like that's kind of where. So originally, like all the way back until like, you know, when we were actively colonizing the United States, there was this monster area that was just muck and sludge uh, right in that area. Nobody even wanted to traverse it. In fact, the, the war, and I'm going to get something wrong on this because it's been a minute since I thought about it, but there's a war between Michigan and, and Ohio. It's like the great Michigan and Ohio war. What? They never come into contact because they can't get past the great black <laughs> swamp. So the two, the two sides never actually came into battle because they can't make it through this monster swamp. Why am I bringing this up? Because the swamp is now one of the most fertile farming lands in the United States, right? Uh And so what happened is they drained the swamp and then those drainage channels, you know, and just in general, all of the farming phosphorus, all of the, all the stuff that they, yeah, all the the stuff they pump onto their fields drains into Lake Erie, which, and Lake Erie is the most shallow it's the warmest and it gets the most negatively affected by these algae blooms, which is why you get these beautiful satellite images of like these monster neon green algae blooms that are deadly, like the blue green algae and the cyano, I think you call this cyanobacteria and botulism are like rampant in these types of algae blooms. There's also a huge issue with salt, road salts impacting tons of lakes. This is one of the biggest problems, especially for like, if you got a lake in your backyard, you live in a cute little community that surrounds a lake. Like not only are you probably struggling with phosphorus because people like to mow their lawns right next Mm -hmm. to the lake, but also road salts get dumped right into our waterways Mm -hmm. and into our rivers. And so salt is also this huge, is like basically changing the salinity of the Great Lakes. Um, And then, of course, I know most about the plastic pollution because part of my artist practice is going to Great Lakes beaches and collecting plastic. At first, I was kind of just grossed out by it, right? Like, as you do, you're hanging out by the beach. You're like, man, it's so dirty. It's so gross. Now I'm like, oh, my God, if I could find just another Barbie shoe, like a pink Barbie shoe, I love it. I get so excited. A Lego, oh, my gosh, please. Lego gets me so hyped. What, What did I find recently? I was at the beach. I found a tiny deflated Barbie doll arm and I found a little, one of those little monkeys that like latches on to the other monkeys, like a little oh, yeah. monkey arms. So monkey I collect all, yeah, I collect all plastic. I collect everything, like even the gross stuff, even the stuff that's just like little minuscule bits 
obviously microplastics are like a huge issue. It's like as the, as the plastic breaks down further and further and further, you can't even see it anymore. Yeah. And I collect all that stuff because I'm just, I'm an equal opportunity collector. I collect all, I, you can't see it from there, but in the corner of my studio over here, I just have boxes and boxes and boxes of trash. So. Hey, one man's trash and another man's treasure. <laughs> With quotes, exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, um, and it's good that like you're actually picking that stuff up too. There's beach glass everywhere. You've heard of that, right? The beach glass. No, I've collected it. And Lake Erie <laughs> has the best, best beach glass. Yeah. And there's a couple different really interesting types of beach glass. There's pirate's glass, which appears like black, but then you shine a light to it and it shows red or, or green under a light. So that's kind of a fun one, pirate's glass. And then mm. there's uranium glass, which is radioactive, which is common mm. on Lake Erie's beaches. So if you take a black light to the beach, you can actually find uranium glass. I'm gonna um, try that. I am. <laughs> yeah, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of fun things on Great Lakes beaches. You've got Petoskey stones. You know what Petoskey stones, Sam? Uh -uh. It's a type of coral that's been fossilized, and you can find them on northern Michigan and northern Lake Huron. It's like this beautiful stone. Same with like the Charlevoix stones. Then you have the Euperlites, which are a type of sodalite. There's like so many amazing things to find on Great Lakes beaches. I love that. Just to bring, I guess, a little bit of awareness, the plastic that you're talking about, uh, the real issue with that uh, isn't only just like that, it's the, the physical plastic, the fact that it will break down over time and create microplastics. It's also the additives that's on top of those. The studies are showing that those additives like, um, like PFAs, BPA, et cetera, stuff like that, phthalates, those are all endocrine system attacking agents. The more that we study on that, the more that it looks scary. The forever chemicals, right? Yeah, the forever chemicals. Yeah. You know, it sounds scary, but the best thing that you can do, and I think how we can combat that is just having better government regulation. Because right now there's like no government regulation. No. Yeah. Especially for things like nurdles. Like I think nurdles are some of the worst because yeah. they just escape. They're like the master escape artists of plastic mm -hmm. Um, because you're not, it's not like you're getting like plastic leftover by people. This is a remnant of a, at like the top of the food chain is the industry is dumping these by accident most of the time. But then at yeah. sometimes it's just like, wow, why did that accident ever happen in the first place? It really shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's kind so of yeah, like I agree. a physical oil spill, just, you know, it's, it's, it's literally oil or petrol product that's, you know, solid and it's being dumped yeah. out into the um into the lakes or into any any bodies that end up into the lakes the reason i think nurdles are kind of interesting one last thing is that uh they're really fun to collect because for some i'm sure that some physicists could explain this to me i need someone to explain this to me i know i have a science channel but i have never figured this out i in theory know what it is but nurdles are fun because they come to the surface of the sand Right. So not all plastic has the power to do that. But nurdles, I think they're lighter than the sand. And that like general wind plus like vibration brings them to the surface. So you're walking along the beach. It's not like you have to dig for them. They're right there on the surface. And they're, they're kind of freaky because they're perfect circles. They're everywhere. I've been to every Great Lakes beach, even Lake Superior. I was shocked at how many nurdles I found on Lake Superior's beaches. You'd think that Lake Superior would be immune to this. But in fact, it's like a very common problem. So next time you go to the beach, look on the very surface. It just like sits on the surface of the sand and you wouldn't expect it. Yeah, it's based on surface tension. And obviously there, it's surface, surface tension. Yeah. And I mean, specific gravity, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So you, you asked you asked the physics question. I'll no, 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 I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I should yeah. do. I wish I could do a video on it. Just wow, this is amazing. Like I love that this guy comes to the surface. You know. Yeah, um, definitely because sand is is very rough. Its crystalline structure is very rough. So if you have something that's smooth, it's going to definitely want to escape out of that roughness based on, especially based on its relative density, for sure. I'm writing this down. Surface tension. Surface tension and <laughs> relative density. <laughs> I love it. Okay, cool. Thank you, Sam. I knew I came here for a reason. I Now we're good to go. We're done. I got everything I needed. I get to go now. <laughs> Sick. Um, speaking of speaking, being done now, we're going to end this first segment. And then when we come back, we're going to talk more about communicating science with Gio and talking a little bit more about what she does. So stick around. Are you an athlete who is constantly on the grind? Maybe you're a student who's cramming for an 8 a.m. exam the next day. Or maybe you're someone who's crushing a hike and you have three peaks to go. Well, you've come to the right ad. Sigma snacks are a healthy alternative to pre-workout and energy drinks. These snacks deliver easily digestible sugars and carbs necessary to crush an early morning workout, late night study sesh, or any adventure in between. By combining caffeine and the amino acid L-theanine, these bars are backed by scientific research to provide clean energy, extra focus, and reduce the anxiety and crash that are associated with normal pre-workout and junk energy drinks. Not to mention, they taste great. Specifically, I have been taking them with me on my backpacking adventures. They're a great way to start the day without having any jitters or an upset stomach on the trail. Lastly, Sigma Snacks is a student-run, student-operated startup that would like to offer you 15% off your first purchase with the promo code STEAM. So head on over to EatSigmaSnacks.com and order your first Sigma Snack today to have the best and most reliable source of energy shipped right to your door. That's EatSigmaSnacks.com, promo code STEAM for energy that's out of this world. Three, two, one. We're into it. This is <laughs> this is segment two. Um, it, this is all just going to be about science communication and uh, talking about how this ties into Geo's work. But what's that one uh, one lady's name? Astro Alexandra. Uh, Alexandra, we're yeah. besties. Yeah, well, yeah we're not I, besties, but I do love her. I love her content. She's amazing. She makes great videos. Whenever I saw like that one video that she posted about all the hate comments that she got, plus like um, how she had to change her name to Alex just to get interviews. Yeah. That was sickening. I don't actually experience that as badly as she does. I think she has, there's a, a few factors that I think make it, make her a easier target in a lot of ways for sexism and just like very yeah. cruel and mean comments. Um, you know, she definitely puts her whole face and everything uh, into the videos. And I I think that does it. I think you just, if, as a woman, you just got to like stick your whole self out there and then you're going to invite criticism just because you're a woman. All I am on TikTok is a forehead. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to deal with that. I'd say like 95% of my comments are really nice, except for on Instagram. Instagram oh, really? is scary. Oh yeah, really? Instagram is so terrifying. I'm terrified of my Instagram comment section. I don't even want to look at it. It gives me so much stress. It's because people can write an entire dissertation on Instagram. They can, <laughs> so they can, they can write the longest comment in the entire world, and I'm just like, I'm sitting back, like, okay, so that that comment you just wrote is longer than the script for my entire video. Like, 
<laughs> like, like, I'm sorry. I just, I summarized it. I'm sorry if I use the wrong word to describe something, which mm-hmm. I'm always like, now I'm always afraid of. Like, uh, so, but I do deal with like climate change denial as like, it's like a constant, especially if my videos mention any type of like geological history, like I did one recently on the Chesapeake Bay. You would find this one interesting. I don't know if you saw my Chesapeake Bay video. It was a banger. It was about the asteroid that hit the Chesapeake Bay. Oh. And, and well, it didn't hit the Chesapeake Bay. It like was not the Chesapeake Bay at the time, but it was, right, right. It, it hit off the coast of what is now United States or, you know, but it hit off the coast. And then as the uh, land changed, the river valley that became the Chesapeake Bay was the flooded river valley was kind of because the land there was established the bedrock was established by this asteroid impact um that video oh my god crazy 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 comments oh my gosh i can't even i don't touch them 95 percent of the time i just don't bother you end up just in a useless battle in a comment section where everything's taken out of context and it's just not it's not worth it (laughs) Have you seen Science Is Real on uh, on TikTok? I love that. Yeah, guy. he's a he's a cool guy. Yeah, he's a G. He he puts up with a lot of stuff in his comments actually because he talks about evolutionary biology, and mm-hmm. you know I, we ain't going there. But you know you know those those people are ruthless. <laughs> I've done a couple yeah. videos where I've gotten some ruthless comments. I'm like, man, I'm just. I'm reading Google Scholar papers. Like I, I don't, I don't know where you're getting your facts from, but this is this is just where I'm pulling it from. And, I, and honestly, what I do anymore is I take the article and I paste it. I paste the link right into the yeah. right into the reply because I just just go read it. it I, I don't want to summarize anymore. Like it's yeah, that's true, and it, it is difficult, especially when people get into nitty gritty stuff. It can be really hard. And and science is real. The guy on TikTok, he's great about like he really engages with people in the comment yeah, section. He does. I'm I kind of just go like I'm not here to fight with people. You know, if I'm ever really wrong about something, like I really feel like I made a mistake, I just take the video down. I don't just leave it up. There's this massive amount of misinformation out there. And a lot of that misinformation comes from people that just don't take their video down when it's clearly wrong. You know, yeah. I can think of so many examples of this where people just blow things out of proportion and there's manipulation of the way that you say stuff and the way mm. that you share information. The other thing is like, is TikTok secretly just destroying the entire uh, society? Possibly. Could, could be. So I think I have ethical dilemmas with TikTok that are... <laughs> And just like this, this, the way that we're consuming information is kind of a, I, sometimes I, I go into deep, like being like, wow, I'm, I'm just part of that whole system. I'm just like a cog in a giant. In one instance, it's really cool because we get to share a lot of gatekeeping is going away so we can provide this information to everybody. But I, I can also see the other end of the spectrum where, you know, it is kind of pulling down our attention spans and making us, you know, more demanding. Like, you know, you know, you know how it is. Like, it's very satisfactory to be on on TikTok. You know, your your serotonin's through the freaking roof, like for an hour, and and you can yeah. just get in a, into a trance, which is it's something so <laughs> wildly new as a concept to to human beings that it's just it, it's very dangerous for sure. But yeah. I, I like both ends of the spectrum. No, I do too. I just think it's an interesting topic. Like, especially if you're somebody who's contributing to it, I think just at least being conscious of it, knowing that you're like part of this larger, you know, 
evolving situation, which is the situation of our attention or whatever you want to call it. Just Mm -hmm. like the way that it kind of gnaws away at our empathy as well. Just because you go from a goofy, funny video that you're laughing at to like a tragic, terrible, like Mm -hmm. something happening in someone's life or something happening to somebody's pet and you start crying and then you flick to the next video and you're laughing again. It's like, it's like giving us whiplash for our emotions. And I'm just like, what is that doing? Like, what (laughs) is that? Like, it's like the news was already gnawing away at our ability to have empathy or to like feel things. And I kind of wonder how TikTok's also playing into that. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Wow. I guess maybe to get on course in terms of what we wanted to address. <laughs> uh, I, I know The actual like a, topics of the video. <laughs> I know we took a big spinoff. I mean, that's cool because like, you know, maybe not a lot of people are really familiar with like the creator end of TikTok, especially somebody who creates, you know, sad science information has to deal with a lot of criticism and stuff and and even just based on like who we are and what we look like too with um with astro alexandra you know it's 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 crazy but i guess more on topic i'm kind of curious why you envelop science the way you do into your work i just i think i mentioned this briefly before but my mother sandra rutherford she was a earth science elementary um, or middle school teacher she taught earth science And then she went on to teach earth science education at the college level. So she actually taught at Eastern Michigan University. And so my whole life has been like very much integrated into science, even though I did not major in science. I took science classes. I loved my geography class in college, loved it, Um, loved my earth science classes. I've never been as drawn to like chemistry, biology, or physics, which I think kind of dominates your high school experience, which is where I started to kind of drift away from science because I really didn't like that part of it. And so my work has always been science adjacent. All of my art has been. I always have made artwork about climate change from the very earliest like paintings in high school I won first place in a painting contest for this really, oh my God, you would laugh if you saw this painting. It's like the most cheesy painting in the entire world. It's like this earth melting and there's like a tree burning and this, this, this industry of like this green smog, like coming up from the bottom. It's like, it's like all of the cheesy, like descriptions of climate change. I kind of put those all together into a painting and I was like, wow, I won first place. I thought I was such a, a badass at the time. But ever since then, I've always included climate change. So when I started doing work about the Great Lakes, I wasn't really going to be doing like atmospheric or like aesthetic pieces of Great Lakes landscapes or ecology, but I wanted to bring attention to all of the issues. So science is tied right in alongside with the work that I'm doing, where I make work that is about climate change, whether that's invasive species or pollution or the erosion and the changing waters that are in the Great Lakes. So it's always been important. I love that. So just kind of similar topic. Um, I know a lot of people are fascinated or just like want to stay with the STEM acronym. Do you, do you love the STEAM acronym? How do you feel about, uh, you know, art being invaked with science, technology, engineering, and math? I think it's important to have art in there because I think a lot of those things are inherently creative, even though you wouldn't necessarily, your first thought with technology or engineering is not necessarily creative or art, but I think they're hand in hand. My first degree was actually an education degree. 
So I taught high school art for five years at the wonderful Chelsea High School in Michigan. And I was always conscious of how to create integration because my mom's a science teacher. She would, she'd be like, well, how are you bringing science into your classroom? And so a lot of the lesson plans that I would form would be integrative lesson plans where it's like, how can we bring science technology and even engineering to a certain extent into my classroom as an art teacher. So as an art teacher being conscious of that so that it can go both ways so that other classrooms can kind of start to utilize art in their spaces as well to promote problem solving, creative thinking, all of those things I think sometimes go to the wayside in education that is, is focused on multiple choice and short answer. And like these functions that are just, are, are, they're all the same. It's like, when are people, having to actually hands-on solve problems. And I think that's where STEAM comes in. I agree. And, and even just adding on to that, the communication aspect of that, because art is a form of communication. Like you can have a great mathematical theorem, but you need to communicate that in some way. So it would be, you know, some sort of algorithm or, you know, output like a, like a code that kind of shows the way that your theorem is expressed. That way people can visually see it. Um, you can also communicate that verbally, like art is, you know, it just comes in all forms of communication. Whenever we image something with, say, the JWST, that stuff has to be colorized based on the spectrum from, like, the infrared portion. And that's put into, you know, in a visual light spectrum such that we can see it. And that's um, that's a form of communication through art, right? Because Without that transformation, we wouldn't be able to really, the layman wouldn't be able to understand that information. Art is in baked. I like the fact that we don't just keep it as STEM and it's um, as STEAM now because it's actually just giving more recognition to art and how important it is in science, technology, engineering, and math. Because without it, we wouldn't ever be able to communicate our ideas. And I think with the more, uh, like you talked about earlier with the misinformation aspect is, we need to train our people in STEAM to be able to take advantage of art to communicate their ideas so there is less misinformation. And that's definitely a generational thing. We need to be more art conscious such that there's maybe less misinformation down the road. I love that. I think that's 100% true. And I think that we should not forego art um, in the way that we communicate. And I think that a lot of my work, something that, you know, the art world might scoff at some of my work. It would be easy for a art person to kind of see through what I'm trying to do with some of it. So I try to make my work for not only art people, but also the layman, also the person who's never had an art degree, somebody who, you know, who has, has, yeah, (laughs) which is fine. Cause I didn't, I don't think I knew what that was six years ago. So it's not a big deal. Um, but I do find that like, if, if I want you, Sam, to be able to walk into my show, into my gallery with my work, and I want you to be able to know what it's about. I don't want you to walk out confused or frustrated. I want you to be like, wow, I feel like I learned something through the communication of this work. Uh, and that's important to me. And that's, uh, that's something that was important about like tons of people were able to come to my show, which was so cool come and see the work that I put together for the Great Lakes. And a lot of that was essentially a part of it is communication. But another aspect of my work that's been so important 
is my videos that I make about my work. In some ways, those videos are more powerful than the work itself, which is interesting. Mm. And maybe, maybe the um, upper echelons of the art world would disagree. But I think that my ability to like, I've at least, at least, you know, 10 million views on all of my videos for my art combined, like something like that. Cause I've had a few of them go really pretty viral. I'm very proud of those ones because they were, it was definitely took a lot of effort to like put together a video that told the story of the great lakes of pollution of invasive species of what's going on with botulism or whatnot through the lens of the work that I'm creating. And mm -hmm. that, that video will always reach more people than the art ever will. You know, the art will only reach a certain audience a limited audience. I agree. Just in my current status of not super famous, just like average Joe making artwork. And so that's, what's kind of interesting is the communication aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. You're going to be able to reach so many different people. I mean, just based on where you are, not everybody's going to come to Michigan to just, you know, to look at your art, but they can definitely see it in Indonesia or anywhere in Europe, you know, <laughs> as long as they got TikTok, they can, yeah. they can see and connect with that. So yeah, that, exactly. that makes perfect sense. I don't know how people would really argue against that unless they're really just all about monetizing their, their art. <laughs> I think it's more like the art world can be a little bit cut off. Like they just take things personally. <laughs> The art world is up into gatekeeping, I think, a little bit. So, anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a, that's a whole art. That's a whole art world conversation. We don't have to dig into, but but it is a fascinating one. So, yeah, definitely. And I think you get that literally in in every act, like every portion of the acronym of Steam. But I think uh, we're gonna run into our last commercial break, and then whenever we come back, we're gonna be talking about something really interesting. Um, a lot of people love this about Geo, and that is Spooky Lake Month. So stick around. Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. All right, we're back. This is the last segment. And I already prefaced it. We're going to be talking about Spooky Lake Month. And if you're confused, I totally get it. That's why we're going to start this segment out. Because you, know, you don't, you know, I've never really heard of that term until I came across your work on TikTok. And it is, it is so fascinating. So, so viral. The, the, the videos are fantastic. So I guess before I spoil anything, uh, I'm just going to leave it to Gio. Gio, what, what is Spooky Lake Month? 
I love answering this question because it is a little bit of a misnomer. If you're not familiar with Spooky Lake Month, it might imply that there is somehow um, content that is supernatural or ghost related. But actually, Spooky Lake Month is about history. It's about science and it's about environmental disaster. That's my favorite one, but people don't like that one as much because it's a little depressing. But I love environmental disasters, which I think are really spooky. So Spooky Lake started with um, actually a lake called Candy Lake in Kazakhstan. And it is a lake that was formed after a landslide. And the lake is bright blue because of glacial flower. So it's like this super turquoise blue. And all these trees are sticking out of it. And beneath the water, so the trees are bleached, like kind of these pokey stumps out of the water. And then beneath the water, there are full trees under the water. And people have like dived there to go and see the trees. So the the trees exist because it was an abrupt lake. It came out of, kind of came out of nowhere after this landslide. That's actually what started Spooky Lakes. I saw pictures of that and I thought, wow, that's just that's just kind of spooky. Look at that. It's kind of creepy looking like what's going on there. And of course I've gotten a little lucky with TikTok where like anything I post, that's like kind of a fun idea. It it always seems to go pretty well. So (laughs) from my very first video getting 1.5 million views and then my very first science video getting 4.5 million views, it's just kind of like a funny, like I don't, I kind of do it by accident. And Spooky Lakes is the same thing. It got a couple million views first year, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was kind of new to the app. And I used, we talked about some fantastic spooky lake topics. So what some are examples of spooky lakes, Lake Nicaragua in shocker, Nicaragua uh, is one of the only lakes in the world that has bull sharks in it. For years and years and years, it was a mystery of like, how do these bull sharks get to this freshwater lake in the center of Central America, right? Like in the middle of this country. And it was ended up being a river system that comes in and the, the bull sharks just go all the way up the river into the lake and then they become part of like the lake population. Another example, Lake Maracaibo, just south of Lake Nicaragua, is a enormous lake that has uh, lightning. It's kind of explained, but it's still somewhat of a, a geological phenomenon where lightning just like, there's more lightning strikes in Lake Maracaibo than anywhere else in the world. It's like this very strange, eerie, like you go there and there's just lightning all night. It's crazy. Interesting. Um, yeah, so like, I mean, there's, there's lakes all over the world that are strange and the, the science is weird or the history is strange or like something has happened at this lake, like shipwrecks are an example of a spooky lake topic. Um, environmental disasters, like anywhere where they've mined is always spooky. Like if they've created an open pit mine and it's flooded, automatically somewhat spooky, you know, cause it's usually full of heavy chemicals and it's usually like orange or bright blue or like whatever. It's like all these crazy colors. So spooky lakes is kind of a fun topic because it's like, how can we, how can the natural world, how can the world around us either begin as something strange and unusual or become strange and unusual because of human history. Um, so that's what spooky lake is. <laughs> that's, no, that's a fantastic way to like get people interested in the science that you want to communicate, right? Making it, making it a story, making it extremely interesting like that. And just literally even calling it spooky lake. Everybody wants to know about something spooky, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool. 
So it, well, and it, that kind of opened up into haunted hydrology too, because obviously my first year I kind of used up all of the lakes. Uh, yeah. Right. And so now I joke that like anything wet goes, <laughs> there's like any water at all, then I'll, I, it could be considered for spooky lake month because now it's like, you know, you kind of run out of spooky lakes, right. Without mm -hmm. like all the best spooky lakes are kind of are, I used my first year, like skeleton lake in the, in Nepal, which is, or it's technically in India. It's like on the border of India and Nepal where there's like skeletons from all these different time periods and all these different heritages. So like we have skeletons from Europe and skeletons from India, all in this one lake in the middle of the Himalayan mountains. And nobody knows how they got there. It's kind of like the ultimate spooky lake. Like that one's so freaky. Bog yeah. bodies are pretty spooky, right? Like where the human body can be preserved because of the lack of bacteria and yeah. in peat, like this anaerobic environment can essentially preserve the human body and they become like leather like, I mean, you, I mean, I felt like a lot of people had heard of bog bodies, but I was surprised by how many people have never heard of them. It's almost like petrification of like wood in, in that manner of like the minerals then just kind of take over rather than having an anaerobic or aerobic decomposition. Which actually applies to one of my spooky lake topics, which is the Black Sea. Black Sea is a very strange body of water. And, and that's because it's technically, it is a sea because of the Bosphorus Strait, which is a big connection to the Mediterranean Sea, which is obviously connected to the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Black Sea, all of that salt water coming in through the Bosphorus Strait goes to the bottom of Black Sea. Right. And the, and the top, is all a lot of fresh water. There's not that much mixing. There, there actually, it's a, it's a miromictic environment, which means yeah. that, or it's a miromictic that doesn't mix very often. So you don't get the salt water and the fresh water mixing together. So then you have this entire bottom half of the Black Sea that's an anaerobic environment. There's not mm -hmm. a lot of bacteria. There's not a lot of life. The oldest shipwrecks in the world are preserved at the bottom of the Black Sea. Awesome. That's yeah, awesome. versus the Mediterranean, that. that doesn't. Ha yeah, it's a fun. That's a fun one. So that like yeah. qualifies as a spooky lake. I've even done lakes on other planets, like Titan, which is one of the. Well, it's not a planet; it's a moon. Uh, but it mm -hmm. has lakes made of mercury. It's like fascinating. Like it rains mercury and uh, on Titan, and so all of these kind of qualify as something that's strange and unusual, but it's entirely part of like, it's real. It's like, this is like, this is nonfiction, baby. It like, doesn't, we don't like get into any of that. Like sometimes people ask me about like haunted lakes and the problem with haunted lakes is that a lot of haunted lakes are actually like indigenous stories that have been like manipulated and taken out of context or the stories have kind of run wild. Like Lake Lanier is probably the most famous haunted lake in America a lot of people have died there and it's a flooded reservoir that kind of displaced a lot of people. I think that there's actually more interesting lakes that are spooky because the world is a spooky place instead of lakes that are like inherently haunted or something like that. So. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. And just kind of, since we've been on that topic, literally this whole time, do you have any spooky lake stories about the Great Lakes? Because why not? Do you, do you have any? Cool oh, I had so many. Of course, <laughs> I have so many. I think I've done a spooky lake topic about almost all of the lakes. This year I did Lake Erie has a had an island 
that was dedicated to prisoners of war during the Civil War. And that was kind of an interesting island where it was like, it's right off of Sandusky, Ohio. And you can actually see it from Cedar Point. The Mm -hmm. island is visible. And on that island, like, um, men died while they were being held captive during the Civil War. So it's kind of this interesting piece of history. Of course, my favorite topic from last year was the Kamloops shipwreck. Have you heard of the Kamloops, Sam? No, no. So, of course, the Edmund Fitzgerald is the most famous of uh, all of Great Lakes shipwrecks. It's Do you know about the Edmund Fitzgerald? Mm-mm, not really a shipwreck oh, okay. fanatic. So that's okay. That's okay. Well, most people are familiar with it solely because of the Gordon Lightfoot song, right? Okay. The, yeah. the Gordon Lightfoot created this, like, ballad about the shipwreck that went down in 1975 called the Edmund Fitzgerald. Okay. It's a super famous shipwreck. Um and it's famous because at the time, and even today, we don't really know why it went down. And there was like this beautiful kind of history alongside the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was like the largest freighter on the on the Great Lakes for a long time when it first was kind of christened onto Lake Superior. But the Kamloops kind of ends up being a little bit more interesting in some ways. We can't visit the Edmund Fitzgerald, despite the fact that it's close to Whitefish Bay and it's kind of actually in a shallow location on Lake Michigan, we can't visit it because a lot of the Great Lakes shipwrecks where men have died, their bodies are never retrieved, right? So we leave them in the ship that they died in and that becomes their graveyard. That becomes the cemetery for their remains. And so the Edmund Fitzgerald, especially alongside its like super fame because it was so famous you couldn't visit it so divers can't go and visit the Edmund Fitzgerald so Hmm. despite the fact that the last times they did visit it the human remains were identified like seen on the shipwreck site we have never visited it versus the Kamloops which is a shipwreck off the coast of the Isle Isle Royale which is the the largest island in Lake Superior it's a national park and I've done at least three or four topics on Isle Royale. Like that's how like Isle Royale I think is just haunted. Like if it's not because of the shipwrecks surrounding the Island, it's because of the cannibalism. If it's not because of the cannibalism, it's because of the copper mining. If it's not because of the copper mining, it's because of the black flies for sure. Haunted (laughs) because of the black black flies. So with the Kamloops shipwreck, it is this, um, it's one of many shipwrecks that went down during a storm on the Great Lakes and They didn't know where the shipwreck was for a long time, but one of their sailors is still an active presence in the boiler room. And I, you know me, I'm not into supernatural. His actual physical body is still floating around the boiler room because of a phenomenon called adipose air. Adipose air or corpse wax in the bottom of deep, cold lakes. Any deep, cold lake, any deep, cold lake, Lake Baikal you know, Great Slave Lake, any of these lakes could have um, dead bodies that have been preserved for up to 400 years. And they become something like a soap. I always think it's like a soap person. I always imagine them as like literally just a little bar of soap because the um, minerals in the water have a chemical reaction with the skin that creates Mm. a hard casing of soap right which protects them from decomposition so then they don't decompose they just become this giant blob of of soapy skin that chemical reaction is called adipose air the result is corpse wax 
or graveyard wax or whatever you want to call it. This can happen in a lot of different environments as well. It's just like at the bottom of cold lakes, but also in anaerobic environments. If a body gets wet in its grave in anaerobic soil, it will also become a soap body or corpse wax or a, you know, one of these. So the famous uh, body in Lake, the Kamloops shipwreck is called Old Whitey. It's this, you know, soapy corpse wax. There's a video of it. It's very creepy. The video is like one of my favorite things ever. It's like this white blob that's just like floating around. And the divers, so that there's obviously like stories alongside this because divers will go into the boiler room with the body and it'll seem like he's following you around because the fins are kind of moving the water around in the boiler room and then he like floats around and follows you. That's amazing. So yeah, that's why in Gordon Lightfoot's song, he says like Superior never gives up her dead because of this. It's not most bodies in most lakes. Like if you were to die and drown in a lake in Texas, your body would bloat and float to the surface, but not in the Great Lakes, not huh. in Lake Superior. Get this. There are 10,000 shipwrecks in the Great Lakes and wow. 30,000 people have died in the Great Lakes in modern history. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So think about how many bodies are just in, in the water that you will never know about. Mm, tasty. <laughs> so yeah, the Great Lakes are a wonderful topic for uh, Spooky Lakes. And I've covered them multiple times. Yeah, I could imagine 30,000 fatalities. That's insane. Over just honestly, like, a, like people think that's a long time. That's a really short time. Yeah, period. 300 yeah. years or so, like at the most. So you know, yeah. 300 years of, I'm thinking like modern, like since we've been recording it. Yeah, yeah. So the Great Lakes are a great topic and Spooky Lakes is fun because it's kind of interesting because Spooky Lakes can be kind of unexpected. Like it's actually difficult to research Spooky Lakes because it's not like you can just Google weird lakes or like strange lakes. Because yeah. there's so many things that could qualify for it that would never come up under a Google search, right? Like True. Lake Guadavita, which is a lake in Colombia which is the actual location of El Dorado, the city of gold. So the city of gold has this like huge connotation, this history to it where it's an actual city and so on and so forth. But actually real, the real El Dorado, the real city of gold is at the bottom of a lake. It's Lake Guadavita. The Moisca people used to travel to the surface of the lake once a year and throw gold into the lake. And then when the, when the uh, Spaniards came and colonized, they tried to drain the lake to get to the gold, right? And people died trying to get this gold that would just be at the bottom of this muddy lake in Colombia. And so it's just really fascinating because the spooky lake umbrella is so broad yeah. that it can be difficult to like figure out what qualifies and of course like cave diving expeditions are kind of my like like mm. bread and butter like everybody loves a good cave diving expedition story um just like there's so many different topics that could that fall under last this year i did uranium the uranium mining in the navajo nation uh -oh. which is a little bit sometimes the only thing i don't love about spooky lakes is sometimes i can hit topics that or maybe kind of like, is it appropriate to give this a spooky rating? Because at the end of every video, I give a spooky rating. And sometimes I pick topics that I think are really haunting and terrifying. But mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. but they're also like so sad that it's like, is it appropriate to like rate this thing? Um, so that's kind of something I'm aware of it. It's kind of a sad aspect of the videos. But um, uranium mining results in tailing ponds, which are radioactive. 
and there's all these giant tailing ponds that like cause problems for the water in the Navajo Nation. So, Jeez. so um, I'm kind of curious, have you looked into any, um, I know that, that I think it's Lake Michigan in like 96 or 97, that there was a hurricane, like an actual hurricane. Did you, did you do a video on that? Yeah, last year. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I did a video on that last year. I also um I've done a lot of videos on like all the deaths in like the Niagara Falls is like a great yeah. place to make videos about. But yeah, I did uh the was it ooh shoot, you're gonna test me here. Nineteen thirteen. I think that's the year of the Great Lakes hurricane, which was this enormous blizzard that on like satellite maps would have looked like a giant hurricane over Lake Michigan. Was it oh. Yeah, I'm. I now it's gonna bug me. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yes, it, I've done a video. I've done a video on that. It's a good one. I mean, it's great for you because like you just keep going with anything that's hydrological, which is which is wonderful. That was a great move by you, Spooky Lakes. To now it's like haunted hydrology. You know, it just keeps the playing field so wide. I've decided that something that's fun on TikTok is people like series. I also think it's nice when it's just a it's a one year one time a year. People don't get tired of it. I think there's a few series I can think of on the top of my head I've seen on TikTok that people just get tired of them. They like, they kind of get over it because they've Mm -hmm. seen too many times. And so I think it's kind of nice to take a break. I think it's nice to give something kind of this highlight once a year. And then Mm -hmm. they can go watch in November. They can watch Ig Nobel November. Do you ever, do you follow Dexter? No. Oh my gosh. You got to check him out. His name is Dexter. I don't know what his at is. I just know his name is Dexter. Yeah, he's a good one because then he does Ig Nobel November, which is like all of the strange Nobel Prize winners that are like not Nobel Prize winners, but the Ig Nobel Prize, which is a separate. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Uh, Honestly, what I do and and I do, I've been wanting to create a series, but um, I've been just like trying to be like that catch all person. Like I, I really just enjoy taking a just a random topic and just making it like i'll do stuff on on sharks i'll do stuff on evolutionary biology i'll do stuff on climate change i'll do stuff on engineering like i just i i mean it's steam so the good thing is i've set myself up to where i can just do whatever i want <laughs> in steam and that's you know, true. If, you, if you love it you love it that's great i mean you can scroll yeah. through and you can get series or you can just scroll through and be like you know that's a really that should be like a really cool video. Like I'm just yeah. going gonna, gonna to check it out. I'm going to learn about Greenland sharks. Like why not? No, I love that. No, that's great. And that's, I for flexibility. I'm kind I am kind of limited, even though I do break out of my mold a lot where I'm like, you know what? I think I want to do a video on the history of iron gull ink. I just feel like it and I just do it and nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like Sometimes I'll get comments that are like, this seems a little off topic for you. And I'm just like, leave me alone. I want to talk about the history of silent reading and the history of books. Like, I don't, it's fine. So yeah, I think that that's a, that's smart of you. But um, yeah, if you think of, cause I also have my series called ancient lakes. So I do this mm. where I, I start by going ancient lakes, ancient lakes. And people get really, that one's kind of sporadic based. There's not that many ancient lakes. So I'm going to run out of them if I do it too quickly versus haunted hydrology is a little bit more flexible. Um, so yeah, it's kind of funny. I, I am kind of curious and, and I just want to hit you with this last question. Is there a reason why you don't do lives? I don't know. I just, I'm 33 and I just, sometimes there's certain things where I'm like, no, I think it partially <laughs> has to do with the fact that like I have zero interest in that type of media. 
And mm-hmm. I have trouble ever making any types of media that I have zero interest in. So for me, I like, I'm not a Twitch person. I don't like it. I don't care about yeah. that type of live stuff. And I just, I guess it feels, it's like strange to be on my side of it. I think that. Uh, you know, I, I'm kind of skeptical. I'm going to do one tomorrow and it's going to be more casual because I feel like if we start to talk about the thing that I, I don't like about this is in lives, you can easily spread misinformation uh, just because you're not doing thorough research beforehand. And I just don't know if I want to engage in that sort of activity because I don't want to give people wrong ideas or, or you know, wrong information. I would rather just talk casually about like what's coming up on the podcast you know, what do I have for ideas in terms of the videos and maybe more of a casual conversation. I don't want to, you know, dive into like having conversations with flat earthers and, and people that don't believe in evolution. And I'm just like, I don't know if I really, really want to do that because I just feel like that's, um, I don't want to be contentious my entire time on the platform. I, I just yeah. want to be fun and stuff. I'd like to have a beer and, and have people kind of figure out like, oh, this is who he is and this is what he wants to do and et cetera, you know? Yeah, I think I could probably do with more of that. I, I kind of have had trouble with, the one thing I think I've struggled with is that I don't always bridge the gap between the science person and the communicator and the art person and like the real person. Like I always joke that I'm like way more in, unhinged in real life than I am on my TikTok, obviously. <laughs> And so sometimes people are like, you should have a podcast. And I'm just like, I'm not an expert in my field. I don't feel com- comfortable having a colloquial conversation about some of these topics that I don't have on the top of my head. I mean, today you guys saw that I made even a few mistakes, even like here in this space. So I kind of feel a little bit like it's, I agree with you that it feels like a way to to spread misinformation just by mm-hmm. not having a script to go along with it. A script means at least I trust that I'm, telling the yeah. truth and like I'm uh, being as transparent about my research as possible versus like this is just me just off the cuff oh know? yeah uh, and you know what I I have to do this like on a regular basis like every two weeks I'm talking to somebody who's who definitely knows their stuff about said topics so mm-hmm. there's a lot of work on my end that comes into just getting semi-prepared to have sort of an intellectual conversation with somebody that knows way more than me about a topic. I mean, I do want to have that aspect of like, hey, I'm learning about this, you know, that way, because I am in a lot of aspects, I'm learning a lot of stuff. And it's kind of almost like, you know, the person that's listening or watching is also taking that same journey with me, they want to learn about sharks, they want to come listen to John Laban talk about, you know, you know, marine biology in terms of sharks, and and learn some cool stuff. And they're learning along with me, but they're also learning from me because I'm doing a lot of behind the scenes, uh, deep dives, you know, I, I'm not like, you know, I studied physics, I studied engineering. I'm not a marine biologist, but I do find like evolution interesting. I find biology extremely interesting. Genetics really interesting. Uh, a whole swath of just things mm-hmm. that are cool. So the way I angle it is no, I'm no expert. And I, I would claim I don't know something, which that's mm-hmm. the bottom line. Everybody should do that. Yeah. um, This is just me taking a fun journey and getting to learn from some awesome people. So, yeah, no, I love that. No, it's great. It was, I had a blast. Thank you for having me in this space, despite the fact that I, I do, I try to make sure people know that I'm not an expert in my field, but I'm, but I have worked my ass off to try to 
have the background that you're talking about to be able to be comfortable with having those types of conversations and communicating science on the internet, which should be a sacred activity, should not be taken lightly. I agree. I agree. Yeah, there's a big responsibility to that. And I think about that quite often. But Gio, honestly, just to wrap up, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. Whenever I emailed you and you emailed me back, I was so hyped. I was like, no way. No yeah. way. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I always appreciate when people send me authentic emails. I try to respond to all of them. So that's good. Yeah. That's good. More well, so than, oh my God, don't ever DM me on, on TikTok. I will never, I do not look at those DMs. Mm-mm. So. Yeah, and I'm like even, and don't look at my comment section on Instagram. I won't, I won't comment. I don't get in that in that action very often. But if you DM me on Instagram or email me, then I will respond. So those are the that's the sneaks for anybody who wants to sneak in. That's how you get in. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it, and we'll be in touch. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. I just wanted to take a quick second and thank Geo for taking the time to share her knowledge on the Great Lakes art, science communication, and worldwide spooky hydrology. I highly recommend you give Geo a follow on TikTok just like I did. Her handle is at Geodesaurus. Her overall link will be in the description. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make this show happen. This podcast was edited by Ariel Piermont, marketed by Courtney Page, QC'd by Panya Pitt Erickson, and our episode art was created by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, as always, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for that feedback, and that rating would greatly help us out in the fight against those nasty algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and just fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for watching or listening to Everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Cell Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.